You know, this morning, um, it was kind of fun sitting up here with all these uh, little girls. Being the dad of three boys, it's fun to, uh, to sit with little dresses and kind of look around and go, wow, it's great that they get to go back to you guys uh, after church today. Uh, they're fun to hang out with for a little bit, but um, no, it's, it's great to be able to come each week and to worship and to open God's Word. Looking around, I see an old friend of mine, uh, Will Schaefer. Will and I were fraternity brothers, so if you need any dirt on me, you can talk to him, but I know a lot on him. Uh, too. But you know, the really cool thing as I look around and see friends come in uh, is I can promise you, I don't think I'd uh, be stepping out of line that Will and I were not the poster children uh, for living a righteous and godly life before uh, our peers. And God has done some amazing work in both of our lives and now 20 something years later in your family. So it's good to see you. Uh, so um, what we're looking at today in Judges. These are difficult sections. If you've read ahead, uh, I hope you get a, a tenor for how in the world do you address uh, chapter 9 with 57 verses about Abimelech and killing a bunch of people and, and that kind of stuff. And then we, we flip over to chapter 10 this week, and there's a couple of guys who are considered minor judges. You know, in the Bible it has minor prophets. It doesn't mean they're insignificant or not important. It just means there's nothing really written about them. We don't know anything about these guys, except that they ruled and they judged Israel for a time. And then we pick up in chapter 9 where we're going to be, uh, excuse me, chapter 10 where we are uh, this week. And you see the people of God constantly falling back into that pattern that they are delivered. We've said a couple of weeks ago that there's no longer any rest within the land, that the last time that was used was at the end of chapter 8. It says, and the land was at rest. Well, we're not going to hear that again. Basically, what is continuing to happen is the pattern of sin uh, in the life, the pattern of rebellion has taken over the people of Israel, and they wrestle with it, and there's no peace. Uh, It's as if God, and he says it very clearly in this section of Scripture, God says, if you want to run after those other gods, I'm going to let you do that. If you want to be ruled by them, I will allow you to be ruled by them, and I will let you determine uh, whether or not they are the kind of God you want to to live for. And he forces us to deal not only with him, he forces in his holiness and righteousness, he forces us to deal with the idols and the other gods of the day, and then to come and to ask, what do we want to do? How is he going to respond to it? How are we going to respond to it? My purpose here at church for you and for, uh, for the staff and for others is simply this. I want to make sure that you have to confront Jesus. So the sermons that we do and the lessons that we do and what we did with these kids, it was a lot of fun, and I hope the the sermons are at least uh, interesting to you. But the point at the end of the day is we want you to confront Christ and and to wrestle with that and let it be uncomfortable even at some level for you to come to a place where uh, God is doing something. And being discomforted isn't a bad thing. Sometimes our natural inclination is that as a parent, we want to rush in and we want to take care of the little kid. We want to rush in and we want to pick them up and make sure they have no consequences of their actions when the absolute best thing to do is to allow them to have consequences to their actions uh, and to wrestle with those consequences and to ask deep and profound questions to begin to train them. Is this the way that I want to go or is this the way that I want to go? For parents, it's am I going to obey and respect my parents and hopefully in that reflect my obedience and respect for my God or am I just going to rebel and do my own thing? 
And we have to allow them to wrestle and to come to that and to guide and direct them. And that's what God is doing here. He's an incredible parent. You're going to see God the Father working in such a profound way today uh, in this section uh, that it's going to challenge you. And there are difficult things. There are tensions within Scripture. I was saying to our new members class today, and we've got a great group of, of folks. We have about uh, 10 to 12 folks who have come through our new members class. And hopefully, guys, I'll put a plug in that you'll come tonight and get a chance to meet some of the other people in the church and um, that you'll be here. And we're going to run another new members class in the fall. And also, parents of teenagers, that's a place where you can bring your teens and they can come and join the church in that way. But I was telling them, if we take out the difficult portions of Scripture, just because they're hard to deal with, we've lost the whole beauty of all the Scripture. And so today, if you've got your Bibles, flip over to chapter 10, and we're going to deal together with some difficult things. I'm going to pick up in verse 6. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Midianites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became important. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. The people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people who were leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is the Lord's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of it. It's an interesting thing that's taking place here. It's a tough passage of Scripture, as I mentioned. And you hear continually that it says that the people turned and were unfaithful to the Lord. They went and served other gods, uh, and they found themselves in bondage to these other gods, and they found themselves serving the other gods and in deep uh, distress, and they would turn back to Yahweh, the God of Israel, their God, and they would reply, they would cry out to him, help us. A few weeks ago we talked about they weren't really turning back to him and saying, hey, we repent, Uh, we want to really follow you. They were just crying out in their anguish, and God was rich in mercy and tenderness, and he restored them. But here you see them turning, and God's response is more severe. God's response is, go cry out to those gods. 
If you want to follow Baal, go call the Baal. If you want to follow Molech, if you want to follow uh, all the different gods who are around in this area and you're serving them and you're sacrificing your children and you're sacrificing uh, other things to them, if you're doing all of that, go ask them for help. Don't come to me anymore. I'm done with you. Oh, you can imagine that moment. It's a moment often that we come to in relationships that say, listen, this isn't working. If you want to run after those other things, go and run after them. I'll let you do that. You see, love oftentimes allows that to happen and sends us. And so then they come back to the Lord and they say, no, really, we are under distress. We'll put away our other gods. We'll follow you. And it says that the Lord relented. But it's interesting. It says there that he was impatient over their suffering. It wasn't the profound nature of their repentance. It wasn't even that they put away uh, the other gods that led God to show mercy to them. It was simply the mercy and the love of a father towards his children who were suffering, and he said that he relented. It's interesting, he speaks of the Ammonites and he speaks of the Philistines. And the next two judges that we're going to look at, Jephthah was a judge who led the people out against uh, the Ammonites who were to the east. And Ammon Think about it, and today that's the city and the capital of Jordan, and so that would be the area of the world that that was. And the Philistines were the ones who were in the southwest, and they lived along the coast, and that's when you see Samson rise up, and Samson delivered them from the Philistines. So he's setting the stage. But the first thing that we need to to ask uh, is this, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Why was God so upset Uh, that the people were worshiping other gods. I mean, come on. What's the big deal? They at least still knew who he was. Why is it so important? Why is fidelity so important? If you're trying to follow me on an outline, good luck. But that would be sort of your first point there. Why is fidelity so important in a Christian relationship? Why is it so important that God says, you and me, that's it, nobody else. Nobody else. And the place you need to go for that is very, very simple. Uh, You just go back to Exodus chapter 20. You go to the Ten Commandments. And you see that God states very clearly there a relationship based on fidelity. Where he says, first, I'm the God who led you out of the house of slavery, out of Egypt. I'm the one who redeemed you by grace alone and through through this, this mercy that I showed you. Now, because of that, have no other gods before me. Now, notice, just as an aside... The reason I read the prologue is I think the prologue is the most important part of the Ten Commandments. You notice what it said. I've already extended grace to you. I have already redeemed you. I've brought you out of bondage. I've brought you out of slavery. I've already done this for you. Now, in response to that and in light of that, have no other gods before me. It doesn't go the backwards way. Have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. Don't take my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your mom and dad. Do all of those things, and then I'll deliver you from Egypt. Do you see the difference? And it's a massive difference, by the way. Most of you have the prologue at the end in your life and how you live. And so God has already saved, he has already moved, and he's already redeemed his people. And now he says this, here's what this relationship's going to look like. It's going to look like me and you. No other gods. You will have no other God before me. You're not going to worship any other God, any other philosophy, any other thought. You're not going to be a secularist. You're not going to be an atheist. You're not going to be an agnostic. You're not going to be anything else in the world, any ist that's out there. You're going to come and you're going to follow and worship me. And we're going to be together. And you're going to have no other gods before me. 
And you're not going to make for yourself any graven images, things in heaven or things on earth, and you're not going to bow down to them, and you're not going to worship them. You're not going to do that. For the Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity or the sins of the children upon, the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But to a thousand generations, I will bless those who follow me and love me. And so here's the deal. And I want to be absolutely upfront because I don't know where each of you are, are coming from in your relationship, but we want to make sure that we're not hiding anything back. I was watching and looking at a friend of mine on Facebook the other day. Was, she was ticked off because she evidently wanted to store some stuff in a little storage uh, place, and it said it was going to be X amount of dollars per month. And so she went to sign uh, the thing, and they jacked the price $30 per month. There were hidden fees and hidden stuff. I want you to hear this about Christianity, especially about our church. There's no hidden stuff. We want to lay it out there for you up front, and here's the deal. God says, I'm a jealous God, and I'm not going to share my relationship with you with anybody else. And if you think that's upsetting, put it into a marital context. Husbands, what would it be like if you came home this afternoon after being out playing some golf or going to the store, and you walked in, and there was another man in your wife's arms in your bedroom? How would you respond? Honey, I'm home. Milk's in the refrigerator. I'm going out to hang out with the fellas. Honey, that's okay. I know everybody messes up. Honey, it's no big deal. Wives, flip it around. You come home and you find your husband with another woman. Younger people who have boyfriends and girlfriends, how does it feel? And how would you respond to that? We hold one another to those same standards, but yet somehow we want God to not be all that upset. If we go running after, and the word that he uses here is prostitute ourselves after other gods. So basically, the visual image that he's saying is this. God walks back into our home, and what he finds is us in bed with other gods. Having intimate relationships with other gods. Being in intimate places with other things and other people and other uh, thoughts and philosophies in the place where only he was supposed to be. Because he said to us, I am your faithful husband. I am binding myself to you. I am making a vow to you that I will never break. I'm faithful to you. Here's my expectation of you. Be faithful to me. Does it help put it into a, family, into a better picture context for you? Well, that's why the wedding service is so awesome. Because it's a cosmic drama that's being played out. It's the picture of the bride of Christ. Us, with all of our sins and all of our mess-ups, what color dress does a bride usually wear? White, because she's perfect? No, of course not. To show purity, not necessarily the purity of the bride, but in the larger scheme, the purity of what happens to a person who walks down that aisle and makes vows to the bridegroom. You see, the groom represents Christ in a marriage ceremony. And the groom comes to the bride and says, now, because of my relationship with you, I'm going to make you white as snow. That's what Jesus says to us. He says, I'm making vows to you, and you're making vows to me, and we're calling heaven and earth into account. And this is the best way God could figure out how to make us understand his relationship to us. That's why, folks, take your marriages seriously. Fight for your marriages. Do not, if you want to know why, I don't want to go there, but... Satan is no dummy, and he knows that if he can destroy the family unit, if he can destroy the picture of marriage and blur it, it blurs the picture of God and his relationship with us. 
There are vows that are going around these days. I usually don't ever let couples write vows, and here's why. Some of them that I heard were like this. I'll love you as long as I live. Okay, that's good. And another was, but tagged on top of that, I'll be with you as long as we both shall love. Okay. Anybody married out there have a bad day with your spouse? Anybody? A couple of brave men (laughs) out there uh, willing to do that. I tell couples all the time, here's the deal. You will fall in and out of like, but you should never fall in and out of love. You may not like your spouse today, but you should be committed to love that spouse today and be faithful to that spouse and to die and to suffer for that spouse and to do all of that for spouse. That's what God's calling us to do here. And so that's why the people of Israel just basically go, oh, well. Molech. Molech sounds like a good God. Let's go follow after Molech. Okay. Oh, but it's not. And Baal. We'll go after Baal. We'll go after Ashtoreth. We'll go after this. So it's interesting that there in the beginning of this chapter, there's a sevenfold statement of all the different gods that they were following after. And then God says in a couple of verses later, I'm going to give you seven nations that are going to rule over you because of that. He said, God gets upset. He's a jealous God in that way about our relationships. I want to establish that as the foundation point for building your relationship with Christ. He says, we're going to love one another and we're going to love one another on my terms. And my terms are this, no other gods. You don't get to go experiment. Wise, how would this work for you? Your hubby is out with all the boys playing some golf and they go down and they, uh, they start going to some clubs. And your husband doesn't, by definition, cheat on you. And he comes home and you say, honey, what were you doing? He says, oh, we were just looking. I mean, what's wrong with window shopping? I wasn't buying anything. Now, I've heard this as an excuse, by the way. Wives, how would you feel? I mean, I didn't do anything. I was just looking. I was just testing the waters a little bit. I was just a little bored, so I thought I'd just go have a little bit of fun. You would say, never would I do that in my marriage. Never would I do that in my dating relationship. Never, ever would I do that. But yet we constantly do that to God. God, I just want to hang out over here a little bit. The culture seems so fun. I mean, I'll come back to you eventually, God. But I'd sure like to enjoy college. So is it okay if I take a four-year respite from you? Or you pray the prayer that I used to pray when I was in college. On Thursday nights, I've said it to you before. God, forgive me for what I'm going to do this weekend. It's funny at one level. Can you imagine saying that to your spouse? Sweetie, forgive me, but I'm going to go sleep around this weekend. I'll be back Sunday night, and I expect you to be in bed waiting for me. It doesn't sound so cool then, does it? And I expect you to forgive me in the middle of that. This is what's happening, spiritually speaking, in Israel and what's happening so often in many, many of our lives. That we're walking around and we're saying, I'm going to have some other gods and I'm going to play around with them. I want to keep God, Yahweh, the biblical God, over here. I don't really want to tick him off so much that he's going to get fully upset with me. But I am going to go out and just play. One old southern pastor put it this way. He said to his son and some of his son's friends, he said, boys, you can't go out on a Saturday night and sow your wild oats and then come to church on Sunday morning and pray for crop failure. Isn't that why some of you guys are here? You had a bad night last night. And you're making up for it today. 
You're saying, God, hey, I'd like to go out tonight. I'd like to do whatever I want to do, and my conscience is going to be really bothered by that, but I don't want to be so bothered, so how about I get up and go to church today? It doesn't work that way. Fidelity doesn't work that way. So God's calling us to a fidelity and a deep fidelity, and what we see on the second part of that is a constant lack of fidelity on the part of God's people. That constant infidelity leads to a situation of bondage. It always does. That it says here that God sold them into the hands of those other gods in those other countries. To be sold to somebody or sold to something means that you are now in full captivity. You have no rights. You have no privileges. You have no freedoms. You are nothing more than property. And that's what happens when we begin and we think, now moving, moving away into this pattern isn't some huge step. Most of us just don't go off a cliff by the way, right? It's very rare that you see a person who is, hey, I'm walking with the Lord here and I'm doing all of this, and then the next day they're totally gone. Uh, They've just recounted and um, they've just said no to everything they ever believed. But what you would find in the midst of any situation is it's small steps. It's a series of many, M-A-N-Y, many decisions, M-I-N-I decisions. It's many, many decisions. It's a little decision here to just well, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a thing. And then the second time you do it, your conscience isn't bothered quite so much, isn't it? And the third time, it's really not bothered at all. And you keep moving away. And then you find yourself in full justification mode of you can justify absolutely anything you've done. And so we make these decisions and we move away, but what we find happens is that we find ourselves in slavery. We find ourselves sold over to these things. Uh, This is a common theme in my teaching, but it's one that's been so profoundly helpful for me, and it is that idea that Paul brings up in Romans chapter 1 when when he says that as as mankind was running after these other gods and running after these other things, it finally says that God gave them over to their lust. He gave them over, verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And the word that he used there for lust is the word epithumia. And it's that word that has become, it's an overwhelming desire. It is a desire that you can no longer control. It's a good thing that has taken on a place of, of necessity in your life, that it's prominence, that it's become, as some say, your pseudo-savior. If you have it, then you'll be happy, then you'll be good, then you'll be saved, then you'll be at peace if I just get this. And whatever that is, you are working and it's becoming a bondage to you and you're living for it. Let me, uh, let me read what uh, was written in a Bible study that came out of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It says, if you want money instead of me, then money will rule your life. It will control your heart and your emotions. If you want to live for popularity instead of me, the popular acclaim will rule and control you. Let's see how merciful it is to you, how effective it is in saving you and guiding and enlightening you. So sold means to be owned by things that you make more important than God. So what is it? This is the time to wrestle. This is the time to think. And then later today and other times, what is it in your life? that you've sold out to, that you have to have. Is it wrong to want to be popular? Is it wrong to want to be liked? Is that yes, no? 
No, it's not. It's not wrong to want to be liked. But where that desire to be liked and to be popular switches over from just a desire to an over-desire is when you have to be liked. You ever found yourself lying in order to keep someone's opinion good of you? Anybody? Your pastor has. So maybe that'll help you with your own conscience. And uh, the reason that I've lied is because I don't want you to think ill of me. So I would rather break one of God's commandments because I want you to like me. Huh. Hmm. What am I serving? Who's my God at that moment? You are. My popularity, my desire for your affection is my God at that moment. Money. Is it wrong to want money and to have money? Of course it's not. But if you have to have it, if you have to have it, then it is. To succeed, is it wrong to want to succeed? No. Let me tell you the story of a young banker. He graduated and he was doing really well and he was with a big bank. And he realized that the way to get promoted within the bank, especially through the training program, was to do incredibly well on the accounting exam. And he wasn't very good at accounting. They brought in a professor from the local university, and that professor came in and taught them accounting. But still, this young, uh, upwardly mobile young man uh, had such a desire for success that what he did was late in the evening, on the night before the final exam, he went back to the tower, the banking tower in the city where he was being trained. And he had gotten to know the security guard over the course of time. And he gave the security guard 50 bucks. And he said, hey, I need to get into the offices. I especially need to get into my boss's office. I left something in there. And the young man went in and got in, and he opened up the drawers, and he found the exam. He found all of the answers, and he aced the exam. He was top of his class, and he was moving forward. Now, this young man had just gone to church earlier that Sunday and had spent the day with friends, and then had gone and done this on that Sunday night, and then took the exam on Monday, and he wasn't bothered at all by it. Why? His God was not the God of Sunday morning. His God was the God of success, and he was willing to do whatever it took in order to promote himself and to be successful. Do you see? Do you see how the desire for success, would it be wrong for that young man to have wanted to make a good grade? Of course not. To be promoted within the company? Of course not. But he was willing to do whatever it took in order to get to the place he wanted to go, even though he knew that it went absolutely against what he said that he believed. And it didn't bother him anymore. He was sold to it. He was in absolute slavery to it. He was lost to it. And here's what happens from an incredibly loving father. This is what God says to the people uh, of Israel here. They came back to him and they realized, "Uh uh-oh, we've wanted these other gods and now we got them and it's not good. And so we're really suffering under these other gods. So they come running back to God and they say, hey, would you get us out of this mess? And God looks at them and he says to them so lovingly, No. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Some of you are there right now. And you look back and you look at God and you're angry with God and you're shaking your fist at God. And all God has done has been an incredibly gracious, loving, just father. He said, if you want to run after that, go for it. I'll let you go do that. I will take off the restraints among you. That's what Romans 1 says. If you want to run after those other gods, I'll let you run after those other gods. See if they'll save you. 
see how they do. You need to wrestle with those things. So, now what? <laughs> That'd be a terrible place to end, wouldn't it? <laughs> Come back next week for point number three. Um, so what happens? What's the rest of the story? The people came back to him and said, no, we really don't want them. We really don't want them. We want you. We want you, and we're so willing to show that we want you that we're going to get rid of all of these Baals. We're going to get rid of the Asherahs. We're going to get rid of Molech. We're going to get rid of all these other gods, and we're going to come back to you. And God said, oh, I see your actions, and therefore I'm moved. That's not what he says. It says that God was moved, and he was impatient. Why? Because of their misery and their suffering. Here's the tension in Scripture, okay? God is a just God, and he's a loving father. And if you are a parent or a grandparent, you know exactly that tension. My child needs to learn a lesson. My grandchild needs to learn a lesson. I love them, though. I brought them into this world. I would die for them. How do I reconcile these two things? How do I do this? The Old Testament does not explain or give the answer, by the way, folks. It's the teaser, and it is the pointer to the answer. The answer isn't the repentance of Israel or your repentance. Is it good to repent and put away the other, other gods in your life? Absolutely. And what you need to do is identify them, dismantle them, and get them out of your life. And move headlong into that today. Don't mess around. But when you do that, and because you do that, it's not when God starts showing you love. Even your movement to taking them down is God showing his love to you because he's stirring in you something and it's his love that comes and says, I'm so tired of the misery of my people. You know where that's brought together beautifully? It's in the New Testament at the cross of Jesus Christ. But the beauty of God's justice and the beauty of God's love are brought together in all of their tension and in all of their love. They're brought together because you serve a God and you're being introduced today to a God who says, you need to obey me, folks. Don't take lightly the obedience to my law. Do not take lightly piety and, and righteousness in this life. Do not be so greasy grace and sloppy agape over here that you think I don't care about any of this stuff. I care about it deeply, but I'm also a God who is willing to kill my own son to love you, even when you go love other things. That's an amazing God. That's the God of the scriptures who's presented to you today. And your question in front of you today, your homework today, is which God do you want to serve? The popular, financial, beauty, whatever God over here. Or the God who so beautifully reconciles his justice and his love in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Because the beauty of the cross is this. It says that Christ took a cup and he drank it. And it was the cup of his wrath. The wrath of his father. And there's a part of me who would want to say to somebody who deeply wronged me, you drink it. The final scene of Hamlet when he takes the head of, of the man who had killed his father and he pours the poison in and says, drink it. Christ didn't do that. He said, I'll drink it. So that you don't have one drop left. And I'm doing this to satisfy both my father's justice and his love for you. So here's the result of that. 
hopefully, when that sinks in and you just let that sink and sit over you, that all of a sudden your desires are changed and your desires are to pursue the lover that you have at home. John Eldridge and his writing partner uh, a number of years ago uh, wrote it this way, don't go after those less wild lovers. You have a lover who is wild about you and passionate about you and who has your best in mind and who is asking you to stay in a, in a relationship with him and only him and quit running after these other less wild lovers who are promising you ecstasy and promising you all of this and promising you and promising you. And I know, if you're honest, have they ever delivered in fullness? They give you just a hint, don't they? You want to know why McDonald's puts monopoly stuff on their stuff and they give away just enough we want a quarter pounder with cheese yesterday you know what they want us to do is keep coming back and keep coming back because somewhere there's a park place and a boardwalk and if you get both of those and so you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you know what you find out at the end of the day you're incredibly fat overweight with greasy skin and clogged arteries and you still only have park place because there's like one other, you know, thing out there. That's what sin's like. It entices you just enough. It says it's just good, it's just good, it's just good. But it never fully and deeply satisfies. Come to the only lover, the only God, who will fully satisfy you. He'll never disappoint you. And if you're struggling with it, look around. Anybody struggling with this? Oh my goodness. Shame on y'all. Does anybody wrestle with this? I can, okay, Ian and Patrick, me and three of us, we're hanging out a lot. Because I, I wrestle with this, by the way, folks. Anybody else wrestle with being faithful to God? Is it difficult to be faithful to God? Yes, it is. But it is always worth the battle, folks. The water that you drink with him, the honey that you eat with him, the food that's at his table, quit going out to carnival food. Quit going after hot dogs and corn dogs and all the stuff you find at carnivals when he says, I'm laying out for you a banquet table that will deeply satisfy you with the best of the best. But you have to believe him first. I hope you believe him today. Let's pray. God, thank you. And forgive us for our wandering hearts. Forgive us that we run after these other gods so easily. And you describe it in your word so well that the sin that so easily ensnares us. There's some here today who are so caught in their addiction, so caught uh, in their fidelity to another God that they don't know if they can get out. God, would you be the mighty warrior that you are and would you come and free them from the bondage of reigning sin? And would their souls rise up within them and sing a praise to you? And would they go after you, bearing your ring of fidelity and live a married life to you that represents the beauty of your love and your justice completed at the cross. Father, for some here, they're wondering whether you're willing to forgive them. Have they gone too far away? Would they hear your voice say, absolutely not? Your grace is deeper than any depth. It's longer than any road that we've run on. And you restore the brokenhearted. You free the slave. You give life to the dead. Would you do that in us today? We praise you and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen.